And that is, if I was to ask you, what is a Christian, what would come to your mind? Just in your own mind, if you take notes, if you want to journal down, how would you answer the question, what is a Christian? Or more specifically, what are the characteristics of a Christian? Someone who confesses to follow Jesus. What are those characteristics? I was doing some reading this week and I was, I was reading about what people think of when they think of Christians and Christianity and, and just a belief system. And it was interesting when they were talking about people that they think of, they thought of this guy. I don't know if you know who that is. Uh, Ned Flanders uh, from The Simpsons. Uh, if, when I was a kid, I didn't go to church and uh, I didn't have necessarily a lot of things I could or couldn't uh, do, but I could not watch The Simpsons growing up. My mom wouldn't let me, but now that I'm older, I, I, I have seen The Simpsons. Sorry, Mom. Um, but I have seen The Simpsons uh, often. Uh, but Ned Flanders is the guy that lives next to The Simpsons. And if you don't know who Ned Flanders is, Ned Flanders is this really, really good moral guy. Uh, he, he really comes across as perfect. Anytime there's something difficult that happens, he's always cheerful about it. He never really deals with the problems that are in his life. Uh, everything is check the boxes. And so making sure his kids are going to a church and, and, and dealing with the Simpsons in that way as well. But it was interesting to me as people begin to say, and literally they, they were listing who they thought of when they thought of Christians. Ned Flanders was one of those. And let me just say this. This is not good for us. And this is why it's not good for us. There's two reasons this is not good for us. It's not good for us for those who believe in Jesus and follow Jesus and for those who don't and have this outside perspective. And there's a couple reasons. One is because Ned Flanders gives this idea that following Jesus has to do with just being a very moral person, right? And if you've been here, we've been talking about this, that your morality, you being a good person is not what makes you a follower of Jesus, the other thing that happens that is not good for us as an outsider looking in is that those who are followers of Jesus come across as people who are supposed to be or look perfect. And I could go into that for lots of different reasons, how we deal with pain and how we deal with suffering. And when things don't go well, do we just put a smile on and act like everything's okay? But there's also this expectation if you're a follower of Jesus or a Christian, then you're supposed to be perfect. So a few years ago, a guy named Gabe Lyons wrote a book called Unchristian. And he interviewed people between the ages of 16 and 29. And he asked them all these questions about what they believed about followers of Jesus. And here are the top six answers that came from these people. These are how people would characterize followers of Jesus or how they would define them. Uncaring. So they, they only care about people coming to church or, or getting saved, but, but not really caring for people and the needs of others. Hypocritical sheltered, judgmental, that Christians are too political, and that they're homophobic. These were the top six things that, that people between 16 and 29 said, that is what defines Christians. Now, maybe I should do a series where we look at those six things and say, okay, where are these things true and where are they not? But it's just interesting to think about how Christians and non-Christians would define Christianity. Jesus at one point says that they will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Like that's what Jesus says is the characteristics of a follower of Jesus. If you were to love one another. Paul in, in, in the Galatians, what we're reading today, is going to give us another clear picture of a characteristic of a Christian. What defines us as a follower of 
Jesus. Well, we're over halfway done with this series. Uh, we're taking a crawl uh, through the book of Galatians. Uh, we're, we're really just going verse by verse and breaking it down and, and seeing what Paul is saying to a group of Christians in Galatia, which is modern day Turkey. He was writing it to a group of followers of Jesus. Paul, as I say every week in this, was not a follower of Jesus. He hated Christians. He, at one point in Acts, it says he was holding the coats of people uh, that were going and persecuting Christians. And so in my mind, I don't know what age he was at that point, but there was something that was put in him that, that made him against followers of Jesus and not just against followers of Jesus, but he was going to persecute them. We looked a couple of weeks ago in, in this uh, letter that he actually was violently trying to destroy the church, that he was trying to wipe it out, but he has this but God moment where everything changes for Paul. Paul becomes a follower of Jesus. He helps other people become followers of Jesus. He plants churches for these followers of Jesus, and then he writes letters back to them. Now, this letter specifically is really important, and one reason I picked this and why we're spending so much time in this letter is because we have to understand what the gospel is. Like, this is fundamental to us as followers of Jesus. If we believe that we're in right standing with God because we're just good people, then we've missed it. If we think that when things go wrong, it's God punishing us because we didn't check all the boxes or do everything right, then we're missing it. We're failing to understand who God is and what God has done on our behalf. And so Paul is saying, look, we're all sinners. We're all separated from God, but God has made a way through Jesus and Jesus alone. There's nothing you can add to it. But there were this group of Jews who were going right behind Jesus, or right behind Paul and saying, look, Jesus is great, but just not enough. And so you need to add to it. And what they were saying was, you need to be circumcised. You need to follow the dietary laws. What they were saying is, you need to become like a Jew. Before God could really accept you, you need to do a few things. And Paul is saying, look, who, who has led you astray? Who has bewitched you? Who, who has done this to you? And Paul is trying to get them back on track to help them see that it is grace and grace alone. It is Jesus alone. Those other things that we do, reading scripture, praying, coming and gathering together and worshiping, none of that will put us in right standing with God, but it might be evidence that we're followers of Jesus. It builds on our relationship with God, but it will never put you in right standing with him. Okay, so let's, let's jump in. We're going to end uh, Galatians 3, chapter 3, and go into chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 26. If you don't own a Bible, there should be a Bible around you somewhere. I'm going to read all of this, and then I'm going to go back and pull out a couple of things. And as I read this, I would encourage you to listen for what it is that, that Paul is saying could define us as followers of Jesus. Galatians 3, verse 26. It says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, you, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children... We were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law 
that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Did you catch it? Did you catch what it is that Paul is trying to get across to the hearers of this letter? What he's trying to get across to you and to me, and that is that we are all sons of God, that we are connected and belong to the Father in a different way than we once did. I think Paul is giving a pretty good definition of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, A Canadian theologian, J.I. Packer, uh, he said this when asked to define what a Christian is. He said, the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. Man, God as father. I remember when I first became a dad and how I was terrified. Uh, I had never changed a baby's diaper, ever. I I wasn't around children, and so uh, my wife... um, gives birth to uh, this beautiful little baby girl. And in a moment, I was deeply in love with her, right? There was nothing she could do for me, uh, but, but I was madly in love with my baby girl. And then we brought her home and I realized that it was now my responsibility to make sure she didn't die, right? Like it was all on me. Like I, I, I was now responsible for this. I had, luckily I had my wife, but I also played a small part in making sure that she uh, stayed alive. But man, I was terrified. And if you've had kids, I know not everyone has. Uh, I remember laying Kennedy down at night and always wanting to go back in and like putting my hand over her nose, like is she still breathing and watching her chest go up and down. And then I realized there's a saying like, I slept like a baby. That is a horrible saying because babies do not sleep well, right? And they don't sleep well in the sense of, I remember one time specifically, uh, Kennedy's eyes were kind of open, right? She's completely asleep and, and, and my person, like, run to Heather. I'm like, she having a seizure? Is she okay? She's like, no, she's just asleep. And I was like, that is terrifying if that's how, uh, that's how babies sleep, right? But I just remember, I just remember, and I still have this on myself as my daughter is going into her teenage years, is I don't want to screw it up. Right? I, don't, I don't want to screw it up. I feel, I feel this pressure on me that I want to be the best father possible. There's this, there's this longing, right? There's this longing to be a great father, and I'm going to fail, and I'm going to make mistakes. But my own experience of being a father gives me a picture of who God is, good and sometimes unhealthy. And then I think about my friends and my own experience with my own dad, as we begin to talk about God as a good father, I know that's difficult for many of you. And I know that at the longing of all of our hearts is to be connected to our father. Uh, Chase, the little boy I talked about last week who talked about um, not getting to um, go to heaven because he just was a bad kid. And I told you, I, I talked through him. I, th- I talked through that with him. And, and this week, I'd never met anyone in his family and I met his grandma this week. Uh, at his awards assembly. And his grandma was telling me about all the strong men he has in his life and how thankful that, that she was that I was a part of his, his life. But she said, there's just something about him that he still longs to have a relationship with his dad. Man, it's just heartbreaking, right? There's all these people in Chase's life who are encouraging him and pouring into him. But at the core of this little boy's life is a longing to have his dad. 
And so I know as we talk about this, as we talk about God as a good father, of being children of this good father, there's this thing that we wrestle with. And let me just say this, everything that you long for in a good dad, everything you long for in yourself to be a good dad, he possesses. That is who God is. He is the perfect father. And so if you're here today and you're like, yeah, that's good to know that God is uh, a father, but is he going to be there for me? Is he going to come through for me? Can I trust him? And I know that as you wrestle with those things, I just want to encourage you this morning that everything that we long for and we want can be found in God. And so Paul says, look, when you have come to know God, you are sons and daughters of God through faith. See, Paul is doing something extremely important here. Paul really is taking the gospel and he is building. So we've been doing this as we go through Galatians. He is working through this process of what it means to follow Jesus. And we saw early on that he talks about redemption. And he talks about how we're purchased from sin. To redeem means to gain or regain possession of something in exchange for a payment. And that is what has happened. That we're justified. Justification is there's no righteousness on our own. We don't just become good enough where God all of a sudden says, all right, you finally have reached the point I've been waiting for you to get to. And now I'll forgive you. Or now I'll welcome you into the family. We have been assigned value and been called sons and daughters because of God, not because of you, not because of me. As I said last week, Jesus is the hero of the story. And so we have this redemption and justification, but then this this deep, meaningful word of adoption, of adoption, that we're adopted into the family, that God has not only saved us from something, our sin and the consequences of sin, but he has done more than just that. He has saved us into something. He has saved us into his family and giving us the privilege of calling God our father. See, as we talk about the law and we talk about rules, the enemy of God wants to use those to condemn, to leave you feeling hopeless. But we've seen over the last few weeks that Paul says the law does much more. The the law draws us to Jesus. We realize that our desperate condition the, fi- the place we find ourselves in really points us to the promises of God and that we're heirs to that promise. And part of that promise is that we're adopted into the family as sons and daughters. Now, there's something very clear uh, that I think comes out of this and something we need to talk about and wrestle with for, for just a moment. And that is this question, are we all children of God? Are we all children of God? No matter what we believe or what we think or if you don't believe God exists, are we all children of God? I think it's important that we understand that we're all created by God. I think it's important for us to understand that we are all created in the image of God, that we are all deeply loved by God, and we are all invited into the family of God. But it seems like in verse 26, that we become children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. It is once we recognize and believe in the promises of God, do we become heirs or belong to him as his children. Does that make sense? That, that we are deeply loved by God, even if you would abandon and not believe in God at all, that you are deeply loved by the one that we believe has created all people. But if you don't recognize that, 
until you understand that you belong to God, that you put your faith in God, then you don't understand or recognize that you are a child of God. And so this is at the heart of the Christian life, that we call ourselves children of God through our faith in Jesus Christ. And God is a good father to everyone. God does good to everyone, whether they acknowledge it or recognize it or not. But until someone recognizes who God is, they do not understand that their identity is as a son or daughter. And then Paul says that we have clothed ourselves with Christ. What does this mean? Well, right there, I just said it. Uh, it means that this is our identity, that, that clothing often tells people who we are and what we do. If you think of an undercover cop, uh, they change their clothing to not be known, right? And so if they're in uniform, you know they're a cop. It tells you who they are. But when they don't want to be known, they change their clothing. And so to say that we are clothed ourselves, we've clothed ourselves in Christ means we have found our identity in Jesus. I've been going through uh, boxes and I'm not, I'm, I like to throw things away, but there's some things that are really hard for me to get rid of, t-shirts being one of those. Um, but, but other than that, I keep my memorabilia from my, my, my teenage years. My dad made these huge binders and he kept everything. And it makes me feel guilty because I, we rarely keep anything. But my dad kept literally everything. Any newspaper article where my name was in it, every sport uh, story that was ever done in my, my high school days, he has kept all of those. And so I began to look through those this week. And I was showing my kids some pictures and different things. And there was this, this thing that happened to me. This thing that happened to me where I began to think about how my identity was wrapped up in that for so long that everything about me was in this book. That if I could do something with a ball, if I could perform on a field, if I played well and the paper covered our story the next day, man, it made me feel good. But when that was taken away, whether through injury or being done, you're at a loss. And so you begin to think about, well, what's your identity? What at the core of who you are, who are you? Who do you say that you are? Is it your job or your success? Is it your stuff? I mean, what is your identity? Because Paul is saying here, once you become a son or daughter, you are clothed in Christ. And that is your identity. That tells you who you are, nothing else, but that you belong to God. The second thing, if we're going to clothe ourselves with Christ, is we become imitators. We, we become imitators of Christ. Uh, kids, you can see this, often want to be like their dads. They, they want to do what their dads do. Uh, unfortunately, I think this is why it's hard to define Christianity by those who aren't Christians, because we often lack in our ability to imitate the ways of Jesus. And so when people see us, they, they see a very different picture than what Jesus would want us to display to others. When we clothe ourselves with Christ, we're now accepted. We are covered. In the beginning, you have Adam and Eve who rebel against God, uh, in their shame, they recognize that they're naked. Uh, they hide from God and God comes looking for them. And there's something very specific that God does. God covers them. He takes a garment and he covers Adam and Eve. And not only is he covering their nakedness, but he's covering their shame because they, they have hid because of their shame. And so from the very beginning until now, we become accepted and we are Covered. When God sees us as followers of Jesus, as sons and daughters, we are covered. We are seen as those who are 
forgiven. So verse 26, we see this connection and intimacy between God the Father and the followers of Jesus as his children. We see the results of this intimacy, this identity and becoming imitators and that we're accepted. And then he shows that there's this unity that comes. Now, Paul is not saying there where he says there's not Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. He's not saying that you lose your distinction. He's not saying you lose your culture. What what he is saying is that as followers of Jesus, as Christians, that is what defines us. That it doesn't matter where you come from or what you look like, we all belong to God. See, we define people. We put barriers up and we separate people, right? By zip code, by what high school you graduated from, right? Those from uh, St. Louis. Uh, When I meet someone, and that's always the first question, right? That's the first question they ask, uh, what high school did you go to? When I tell them I'm from Oklahoma, there's this look on their face like, oh, I don't know anything about you then. (laughs) I I can't make assumptions about you because I don't know what school you went to, right? We, We give distinctions and we define people by certain things, by race or culture. There's a prejudice or there's a bias by economics, by gender. Paul says that because of the gospel, there are no barriers that separate us. Uh, An author and, and pastor up in the Manhattan area named Tim Keller, he points out that Paul calls out the three main barriers that we often see. The one, the cultural barrier, the, the Jew or Greek. So the Jews are trying to get these Gentiles, these Greeks to become like them. They see it as a barrier, or as a divide, that they're different. They probably even saw themselves as superior. So I think what Paul is saying is, look, when you become a follower of Jesus, when we begin to see one another as belonging to God, there are none of those barriers. No one is superior to anybody else for any reason. Uh, he says there's the class barrier. There's, when he says the slave nor free So whether it's blue collar versus white collar, uh, the comments I hear on both ends, whether it's someone who they may perceive as taking advantage of food stamps or the system, or someone who believes certain things or resents someone who has money and drives a certain car or lives in a certain house, right? There's this divide that takes place because of economics. And Paul is saying money doesn't define anybody. It's their identity as followers of Jesus. And then he says the gender barrier, male nor female. See, women during Paul's times, time was seen as inferior to men. And Paul is saying in this moment that women are equal before God, just as gifted and just as able. That's one of the beautiful things about having a daughter and telling her often, you can do whatever you want. Right? It doesn't matter because you're a girl. It doesn't limit your capabilities or your abilities. You can do it. And then I'm thankful to be a part of a tradition, a denomination, that doesn't only see men as capable of preaching and teaching. That we believe that God gives the gift of teaching and preaching to both men and women. And so I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that we see that the barrier of male and female is not there. And so nothing divides us as followers of Jesus, that we're all one under Jesus, that we belong to one another. And then in verse 29, we see Paul is connecting the readers back to the Old Testament, to the father of the Jews. He talks about Abraham. So the Jews would have known who their father was, and they would have believed they were heirs because they belonged to Abraham. 
But he says this, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So he's saying, even though you don't fit the lineage of the right family or the right culture, if you belong to Christ, then you are an heir to all the promises that were given to Abraham, to the Jews. They belong to you as well. And that we're heirs, not according to where we're born or what we're born into, but we're heirs according to his promise and also not our performance. Okay, so in chapter four, we begin to hear this word uh, pretty strongly, this word slave. And slavery in the scriptures in the Bible is much different than the slavery we've experienced in our own country. Uh, Very, very different. Uh, Slavery in the Old Testament, slavery uh, that we read about, uh, oftentimes you could have called them workers. Uh, You could have called them someone, uh, prisoners of war. It could be someone who had a debt and said, hey, I can't pay you, but I'll just work for you for an extended period of of time. And so when you read about slavery in the scriptures, it is different than the slavery that we experienced in our own country. And so just, I've said this before and just as a side note, so whenever the church, and this happened, whenever the church used the scriptures to make an excuse for slavery in our country, they were taking the Bible completely out of context. It was never okay. And the church needs to repent for that. The church needs to acknowledge the pain that has been caused by the church, even during civil rights and other moments. So just as you hear that word, just know it's different in the scriptures, and it means a lot in in this one. So let's look, verse 4 of chapter 4. It says, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. So in the beginning of chapter four, he talks about children and not being different than slaves. And what he's saying is slaves have no right to the property of their owner. They have no rights to the property of the one they are working for. Just like a child doesn't necessarily experience or have those rights, yes, yet until it is the right time. But Paul is saying we have been set free from the experience of not being an heir to those, of not belonging to God. That which has been promised to us is ours. Verse six, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. The only way a slave becomes an heir is if the father of the house didn't have a son. If the father of the house doesn't have a son, then he could pick someone who worked for him to be an heir to everything that belongs to him. And Paul is saying, you belong. Every promise that God makes belongs to you. You have the privilege of being called a son or daughter of God. So what are these privileges? Just really quick, I'm going to run through these. The first privilege is the obvious. We call God Father. When Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, that's what he starts with, our Father. There's a deep meaning behind that, a deep meaning. And then the word that is used is Abba, Abba, Father. If you know the the New Testament and you have read when Jesus is praying to his Father, to God, he uses this word Abba. It is a picture that we go to God the Father just like Jesus did And this word Abba is an extremely 
personal word. It means papa or daddy. This morning I was helping someone out and watching their little boy just for a little while. And uh, he's a, uh, a young one. And so he was great. We were playing with a football in my office and we were kind of hanging out. And then all of a sudden he just stops. He just stops and begins to get upset. And he just over and over for several minutes just said, daddy, daddy, daddy. And I tried to comfort him. I tried to figure out what was going on. Right? Have you ever done that with a little kid? You just start naming everything and you try and figure out what it is. But the only thing you could say over and over is daddy. Because for him, all he needed in that moment to feel secure and safe was his daddy. And so it's this personal picture of a loving father, not someone who is way out there, but someone who is intimately involved in our life. With the help of God's spirit, we're able to see God as Abba. We're able to believe with certainty that his love for us is unceasing. When things are difficult, when we have grief and sorrow, when there's pain in our life, to be able to know that God is our good father and he is our papa or our daddy hopefully changes not only how we see ourselves, but even our situations. Uh, and if we're heirs, that means we have access. That a slave during that time would be limited in their access to the father or the owner. But as an heir, as a child, we have complete access to everything. And if we have complete access to the father, then we're no longer ruled by fear. Just really quickly, fear, what I've seen lately as I, as I meet with people and talk with people is so crippling. This fear of not knowing what's next, this fear of truly being loved by God, this fear of belonging, this fear of shame, this fear of missing out on fulfillment or losing approval. See, kids in a healthy relationship they feel the most safe when they're with their father in a healthy relationship, in a storm, in a difficult situation, to be near their father. They feel safe and secure if that is a healthy relationship. Fear is pushed to the side. And so if fear is ruling your heart, would you understand that you have access to the father who keeps you safe and secure? And then that we can ask for anything that we need. In Matthew 7, we see Jesus talking about just asking. Verse 7, it says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds and to him who knocks the door will be open. Verse 9, Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, broken people... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now, this isn't just ask whatever you want, but you need peace. You need strength. You need hope. You need love. You need belonging. You ask the Father, and he is more than willing to give us those things. He will give us what we need. And then the other privilege of seeing God as Father is it changes our life. It changes the trajectory of our life. We are never the same. First John 3, 1 says, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. It may not be who we were, but in a moment, if you have acknowledged your brokenness, if you understand who God is and his forgiveness and his grace, this thing you could never earn, it changes the trajectory of your life 
forever. He says, you are no longer a slave, but you are a son. You are an heir to all the promises of God. In a moment, everything changes. Uh, if you flew much before 9-11, uh, you knew what it was like to go through uh, the security pretty quickly and you would go to the gate, right? And, and all your family, all your friends could walk down to the gate and watch you walk onto the plane. And then when you got off the plane, there were people there waiting for you. If you flew before 9-11, that's what it was like. And then 9-11 happened and everything changed in a moment. It will never go back to that. It will never go back to pre-9-11. Uh, now you basically have to get undressed to go through security. And then you walk alone to a gate. You walk off a gate alone until you're out into the outer parts. It will never change because of this one event. It looks different and always will. The same is true here that you may not have known or recognized the grace of God, but the moment you do, you became a son or daughter of a really good father who lavishes his love on us. And then from that moment on, the trajectory of your life looks different. It doesn't mean that everything will be perfect. It doesn't mean there won't be difficult times, but the, the fact that you are deeply loved by a good father does not change and it changes our lives forever. So have you had that moment? Have you had a moment where you recognize God as a good father? And that no matter what your past has looked like, no matter the brokenness, no matter what you've done to yourself or to other people, there is this forgiveness that is available to you. And in a moment when you accept that, you become a son or daughter of God. And then you are an heir to all the promises of God. Have you done that? If not, maybe today is the day that you recognize that. And then if you have, are you living into your identity as a child of God, an heir to those promises that you have access to the Father and you are an heir to him because of Jesus and Jesus alone. You could never earn it. So if you right now are keeping score of your good and bad, would you understand that grace just overwhelms all of that? That you could never perform well enough. That he would love for you to belong into the family. That even if you have it, you are created and loved by God. You are created in his image and you are invited into the family. Uh, guys are gonna come forward and, and play uh, our closing song here at the end. I'm thankful for these guys. Greg, our worship pastor, is uh, away on vacation. And so we have a great team of people who support Greg and work with Greg. And so I'm thankful for these guys uh, really taking the lead this morning. And, and every week we end with this song. And so as we were thinking about this, we're like, man, we've got to end with this because this is, this is what we do. And not in a legalistic way, but in a way to say, man, this is what I want for my life. Right? This is, I want the kingdom of God to come here and now in our lives and in our and so I hope, I hope you will know at the deepest place of your heart that you are deeply loved by a good father, the perfect father. Would you stand as I pray and we'll sing together. Father, I'm so thankful that we get to call you dad, that we get to come to you as Abba, that we are safe and secure because we belong to you. I pray against the voice of fear. Whatever that looks like for my friends today who have been believing in the fear voice, that things will never change, that this is how life is going to be and they're living in shame, Lord, would they push away that voice this morning 
but they hear the voice that says that they're deeply loved, God. Would you speak to them this morning? Would each one of us know that we belong to you, that we are heirs to all the promises, the promises of your love and your security and the safety of being in your presence. God, would you help us to live that out everywhere that we go? May we be imitators of you. May we clothe ourselves in such a way when others see us, they see you. I pray that this would be a moment that changes the trajectory of some of our lives. That we would move into sonship and being daughters of a good dad. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.